Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are and whenever you are. Welcome back to our series on the spiritual life. It's been almost four weeks since I last recorded, and I'm sorry for the long absence. Life got a little busy and had other things to attend to. If you're listening through the link at Mid-Valley Bible Church, I don't need to apologize because uh, as far as you're concerned, there was no break. This is all one one big thing. So the apology goes out to the two or three regular listeners out there. I'm sorry. I'll try to do better next time. So we're exploring the first of two passages that deal specifically with the spiritual life. And they're 1 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 9. And actually, the verses prior to that do a good job uh, in context of, of explaining the context. I read a few verses ahead too, so maybe 2, 6. Uh, going on to chapter 3, verse 4, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 through 14. We're dealing first with 1 Corinthians. How appropriate, right? First, 1 Corinthians. Uh, and we're talking about the deep things of God. Is it knowledge? Is it wisdom? Does it involve a secret handshake? Does it mean I know it and you don't, and therefore a church at church or wherever I get to look down on you? No, no, no. The context of the passage in 1 Corinthians is maturity exemplified in unity in the body. So the deep things are God are not things that divide, but a thing that unifies. The fundamental deep thing of God is Jesus and Him crucified. Of course, when I say the fundamental deep thing of God, I'm speaking in context here. Something promised yet concealed to a degree in the Old Testament and now revealed in the new, in the flesh, if you will. This has been God's plan of love from since the beginning, since we messed things up at the fall. On a side note, Satan is the one that originally messed things up when he rebelled against God and took one third of the angels with him. We see that in Revelation 12, chapter 12, verse 4. We can't blame him for what came next. He tempted and deceived Eve, but we... To our shame, his shame and to our shame, ate with his eyes wide open. And we have inherited that tendency in our flesh to rebel against the things of God, to reject what God has commanded, and to attempt to do things our own way. The bottom line is, I only have to look at the mirror to see my sinful self. I need Jesus and his sacrifice. And... So do you. So do all of us. So let's get back on track. I said last time that I would talk about five main things that this passage in 1 Corinthians conveys. Granted, there's a, a lot more than five things here, but there, these are the five things I like to focus on. As a reminder, this is simply an abridged oral version, and the full study is available at ariel.org. If you can, open your Bible and look at verse 9. And all I'm going to read at verse 9 is, quote, as it is written, end quote. <laughs> That speaks volumes right there. Here you have Paul, an apostle. That, by definition, is someone who was an eyewitness of the resurrected Lord Jesus, our Messiah. Someone who was entrusted with the writing of what would become most of the books of the New Testament, or Brit Hadashah, for you Hebrew speakers out there. He could have spoken with his apostolic authority, and he did. But he also said, as it is written, we should speak like that, shouldn't we? We should know the Word of God so well that when a situation, a circumstance, or trial comes our way, we can think immediately of a passage of the Bible that speaks to that. And guess what? You can. Technology, especially today, affords us that in such a simple way, perhaps like never before, because you can have an audio Bible running in your ear right now. Um, I don't mean right now because I want you to hear this, but you know what I mean. As an aside in antiquity, you would have to have a servant or a slave to do that for you. One example would be Pliny the Elder. He did that. He would have uh, one or two of his slaves, the Greek slaves, reading books to him. So uh, that was his version of an audiobook. But if you don't know who Pliny the Elder is, who cares? Don't worry. You can fill your mind with God's Word today so easy. 
So let's get back on track. The first thing this passage tells us is that divine revelation is given through the Word of God. Now in the past, many things have been revealed in many ways, like through prophets, for example. But now, many more things have been revealed through the Word of God or made clearer. A great and clear example in the context of what we're talking about is the death and resurrection of the Messiah. Although one could arrive at that conclusion simply by studying the Old Testament, passages like Isaiah 53, for example, it's not until the coming of Jesus and his actual living out of these prophecies about him that this was made abundantly clear. And now this knowledge has permeated the whole world. The scriptures do speak of progressive revelation and that the Bible reveals things in a building block process. This doesn't mean that we look outside the Bible, though, to see new revelation. That's not the right way. Everything that we need to know about God, that God has revealed to us, is in His Word. It's in both Old and New Testaments. We don't need to look outside of Scripture. In fact, that's a mark of a cult or of a worldly church. They always have to add something extra. I think here of our Mormon friends and neighbors. Uh, they come to mind. You have to add something extra. Also, liberal churches that promote unbiblical things and claim that these things have been revealed to them by God do the same. Although most don't really say that. They just turn their back on what God has said. The bottom line is that the Bible is the Word of God, and it does not contradict itself. Let me say that again. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. The eternal and all-knowing God, creator of time and space, spoke. He's right. Listen to Him, and don't try to invent new things. Run everything you hear through the filter of God's Word. Run everything you hear through the filter of God's Word, even what you're hearing right now. The conclusion is this. Paul could have spoken with apostolic authority alone, yet he chose to use the words as it is written, as he often did, to instruct us in that now, more than ever perhaps, the written Word of God is our source of divine revelation. The deep things of God are to be known by and through the Word of God. Makes sense. We spoke last time of how we can only know someone's mind if, they have a, if we have a heart-to-heart -heart with them. Well, guess what? The Bible is God's heart-to-heart -heart with you. We're not to look elsewhere. Unfortunately, the Christian church over the centuries have done just that and has attempted, I think unsuccessfully, thank God, to supplant the Word of God with works or with other books or other teachings. Stick to what has been revealed, okay? There's enough in there for many, many lifetimes certainly for your lifetime, for my lifetime. I recently heard of a pastor uh, that declared, and I quote, quote, I'm not a Christian. I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus, end quote. He then goes on to embrace what the Lord, specifically in his word, calls sin in this world, and in fact elevates it as, as not only not sin, but something good and right. Unbelievable. To call good evil and evil good is not the mark of someone that understands what the word's as it is written, really mean. My prayer for him is that he will repent because guess what? The Lord is soon returning. The time is short and every moment and every day it becomes shorter. And all that seems so solid and unmovable will vanish at his appearing. So this is a faith I, I cannot walk away from. And I hope it's the same faith you have that you can't walk away from. I think of Peter's words here, and I just I remind myself of those words. I love Peter. Such a great example. He says in John 6, 68 and 69, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. He then goes on to say some things that caused Jesus to tell him to get behind me, Satan, which is another reason I love Peter, because Peter is like me. He has his ups and downs, and I just love him. I love that God chose him the same way that he's chosen you and me. I had this ambitious goal of dealing with all five points today, but I think we need to address the issue of the canon of the New Testament, or how do we get the New Testament? I'm going to do that very briefly. I think the Old Testament, in my mind at least, is easier to accept as complete because there are hardly any variations among disparate groups out there, both Jewish and Christian, on what the inspired books of the Old Testament really are and which ones aren't. With the exception of the apocryphal books that you find in the Roman Catholic Bible, the list is identical. However, when it comes to the formation of the canon of the New Testament, I think some clarification is needed. So first, when we read the words, as it is written in verse 9, the only scripture available to a believer in Messiah Jesus at that point was what we would call the Old Testament, or the Jews would call the Tanakh. Initially, specifically for the infant church there in Jerusalem, there were apostles available to explain the teachings of Yeshua, of Jesus, live there. So as a church grew, uh, the need for a detailed life of Jesus grew, and we see the first good news book or gospel <laughs> uh, of Matthew appear, written by a Jew for Jews. What followed is Mark, written by a Jew with a Greek name for the Romans, short and sweet and to the point. After all, Cornelius, the first Gentile convert to Christianity, was a Roman centurion. He doesn't have time. He needs to, he's got a lot of responsibilities. Then we have Luke. Uh, Luke, written, there's my Portuguese act, accent coming out. Then we have Luke, written by a Greek Jew. Yes, I think Luke was a Jew. Some people think he wasn't, but I do. Uh, who was also a highly educated medical doctor and whose audience was the Greek world. And that was really the world of the time. The Roman world was a Greek-speaking world. Latin was spoken as well, but Greek was a primary language and culture. He has a follow-on book called Acts that is a description of the early church. And finally, we have uh, the book of John, written for the church at large, a generation or more after the book of Luke was written. Uh, local congregations like the Corinthian church started to compile letters that were written by the apostles addressed to them. And some of these letters said things like, hey, I want you to pass these letters around. And in time, letters that could be authenticated as genuine were widely accepted as such. Okay, And one of the marks of authentication is that the author you know who the author is. Hebrews is the exception, but uh, it's uniformly accepted as being canonical or as being true. We see historically very little, if any, argument about what was genuine and what was not. In fact, that that wasn't the argument. In fact, when Time Magazine, this is a little aside here, or, or whatever secular magazine out there runs there yearly, usually around Christmas time for some reason. And the title is used, look at this secret book of the New Testament that was kept from us or something like that. Uh, all these books, without exception, were books that were rejected back then as not being true, as not being canonical. And one of the reasons is because the author is not really known or the author is not written in there. Say, hey, I wrote this book. So uh, there's nothing new under the sun, is, is there? Uh, for great treatment on this subject, see the Messianic Bible Study or MBS number 30, 34, and 37, available free at ariel.org. And I'll put a link on the little outline. So let's hit point two before we call it a day to day. And point two is that the Holy Spirit now is the one that illuminates our minds to know and understand the Bible. 
We see that so clearly in this passage, I think. In verse 9, we have this glorious passage that speaks, and I quote here, What no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him, end quote. And right after that, Paul tells us that these things are revealed to us by the Spirit of God. These things come straight from his heart to mine, to yours. In other words, the things that are written can only be understood by those that have the Spirit of God in them. To make it really clear, someone can be the greatest theologian in the world, but if he does not have the Spirit of God, if he's not saved, he may have some interesting insights, a deep knowledge of the words used and whatnot, but he will, and so many have and are, miss the whole point. And what is the point? What is the deep thing of God? Jesus and Him crucified. In the end, they either try to elevate themselves to God's level, a fool's errand, and attempt to deconstruct the words and understand the speaker, or what I think is the most common approach, the attempt to bring God down to our level, to man's level, by making themselves, man, the creature, the ultimate arbiter, the ultimate decider of what is and isn't true and what is or isn't being said. Jesus crucified deconstructs their argumentation because to accept it, prima facie, which is Latin for from the face, requires that they admit their need for a crucified Messiah, something I have observed few can do. So if you read, and I mean few here in the context of those that claim to be believers, but when you hear their writing, or excuse me, read their writing, you see that they're not. So if you read this passage and you see clearly the need for a Savior, if you rejoice in the deep thing of God, this is not your own doing. Let me say that again. So if you read this passage and you clearly see the need for a Savior, and you see that you've appropriated that need, you, you've believed in Jesus, if you rejoice in this deep thing of God, Jesus and Him crucified, this is not your own doing. This is the work of the Spirit of God who is illuminating your mind to understand the deep things of God, starting first with the foundational truth of our justification of us being made acceptable to Him. Amen? Amen. So let's go to the day today and pick this up next time as we continue to explore these five things this passage in 1 Corinthians tells us. A letter written by Paul to the church in Corinth, kept by them and copied and passed along. Thank God for that. Remember this week to get the Word of God in you, okay? Shalom. Bye.